Please join us now for our 2016 post-election series hosted by Bill Goodman of Kentucky Educational Television. Center College, known for its award-winning faculty, has been ranked number five in the nation by U.S. News and World Report for best undergraduate teaching. The Centerpoint podcast series offers a glimpse of the engaging conversations that take place in Center classrooms every day. In this ninth and final episode in the 2016 post-election series, Bill talks with Dr. Dina Badi, Assistant Professor of Politics and International Studies, and Dr. Bo Weston, the John M. and Louise Van Winkle Professor of Sociology. Their conversation, focused on Alexis de Tocqueville, is titled, Democracy in Trump's America. Professor Weston, Professor Badi, thanks uh, for having this interesting discussion, which will take a little bit different angle than we've had in our previous conversations. And that is that, uh, of course, there has been uh, much written uh, post-election speculation. Um, We've heard from some historians. Uh, I heard uh, a fascinating conversation with Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, and she's always the best at comparing one administration uh, to another, going way back. Uh, But I haven't heard, uh, Professor Weston, anyone discuss uh, democracy in America and Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, trip to America from France uh, many, many years ago. And uh, let's just, first of all, uh, for our listeners, uh, define who he was and why he came here and for what reason. Right. So uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, and and that's a title, he's the Marquis de Tocqueville, so you refer to him as Tocqueville, um, came here with his friend Auguste Beaumont uh, to study prison conditions in the United States and was looking primarily at the Quaker-run prison in Philadelphia called the Eastern Penitentiary versus that institution that will later become Sing Sing. And one was a penitent model that the Quakers thought that if you thought about your sins, you would become less bad. And the uh, the Sing Sing model was more punitive. Um, but while they were here, um, and really by intention, uh, they wanted to see how democracy was working in America. So Tocqueville, as an aristocrat, was of a class that was highly suspicious of democracy. They thought that the, if you gave the mob power, they would just take all the money from the rich and kill them all. And given what happened later in France, this was not entirely without grounds. Um, But Tocqueville, as a liberal aristocrat, thought that they should actually go investigate, go see on the ground, and looked carefully at the character of the American people and the the conditions. They started with the physical conditions, uh, talked about the religious history, the ethnic history, um, and then the actual political institutions. Um, to see how democracy was working and really uh, gave an account of why it could continue to work, why it could continue to produce good results. One of the things that people were fearful of is that people are basically selfish. So if you give them power, if you give ordinary people power, uh, they would just vote their self-interest. And I think what I take away is the most interesting idea in democracy in America is that Americans do believe in self-interest, but self-interest rightly understood. And that is that if I contribute to the building up of my community, then I am well served myself. So when he went to particularly small towns, places like Danville, for example, and found that there was a local problem, 
that a group of people would get together, a committee would be formed on local initiative, and they would address it. And very often these things never became official or governmental. Uh, sometimes they would start a project that would be taken over by government. Sometimes it would be a public-private partnership. Sometimes it would be business-oriented. But that local initiative to solve problems really was the thing that made democracy work. And it didn't require Americans to be angels, to be altruists, but rather to see that their self-interest came from transcending a suspicion of one another and working together. And, and really, I think this is how any society works, how any group works, is we start from a, a, a groupish desire to protect the group against outsiders and expand the range of sympathy, expand the range of trust. So when we go from a little tiny society to this enormous America that we have now, uh, expanding the range of trust is really the gigantic achievement of our civilization. And we see in this election some reaction to that, right? Just the, the nationalisms of various kinds um, cut against the e pluribus unum that has made America so successful up till now. Professor Body, what um, parallels do you see? Uh, you studied and read uh, de Tocqueville, and uh, it's a, a leap maybe to think that uh, what he might find today uh, after this election. What, what are your thoughts? Well, one of the things that um, he was concerned about in, in terms of his comparison between the United States and France um, in the 19th century was the presence of an aristocracy um, in Europe that did not exist in the United States. And we were just having a conversation about this. Um, that perhaps today, uh, aristocracy, it's, it's an antiquated term, first of all. Um, and so we don't see an aristocracy in the United States um, that would take the same form of what he would have seen in France at the time. Um, however, there is a divergence of interests um, that does exist in the U.S. between what we could think of as sort of a more modern form of elite uh, versus the common man, again, to use antiquated terms. And um, there is some concern that there could be a breakdown um, of democracy in the United States under a Trump administration, um, not a breakdown in terms of, you know, shredding of the Constitution necessarily, but a breakdown of the democratic values that have persisted for more than 200 years um, and um, a question about just how stable the democratic form is in general and how stable it is in the United States in particular. Um, and so if de Tocqueville is right and if we can make a comparison, whether it's a fair comparison or not, between um, the aristocracy that he saw in France then uh, and the elites that we see now and that divergence of interest between what we would call the upper echelons and, and the lower echelons, um, then that would be something that could compromise democracy as, as a value at least. Professor Weston, don't we see today um, a uh, or not a revival of um, politics on a local level that we haven't seen before uh, in in several years? And there are always examples uh, every political cycle. But for example, uh, out of out of the last couple of years and what we've seen wrought up from from grassroots uh, was Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. uh, we we now hear 
that uh, the William uh, a million women's march uh, is uh, going to occur uh, the day after the inauguration. Mm-hmm. We uh, know of uh, social media, which Dodokva would uh, I'd like to know what you mm-hmm. would think he would say about that. Uh, uh, started the uh, the pantsuits uh, uh, pantsuit uh, organization that mm-hmm. you can only be invited to by someone, and it's only on social media. Right. So these. This is the kind of local government that he looked for in small communities. It just uh, is it still alive and robust? Uh, yes, um, and and the political class is still a minority, right? And always will be. I mean, even in this um, highly participated in election, half the people didn't vote, and that um, you can get a million people to march is a lot. But in a country of 320 million, it's still a pretty tiny group. Um, there was a very large march against Obama when he, after his inauguration. It didn't uh, really betoken an ongoing grassroots organization. Um, social media is good for getting people in disparate locations to discover one another and to have a community of interest, which a proportion of them will then do stuff um, together. But every organization we can think of is still a pretty tiny percentage, even if it's a large number. Uh, Local politics is really more about solving local issues. So Black Lives Matter as a movement, for example, and we could take conservative equivalents of that, is really a national consciousness raising effort about that there is a general problem. Um, If a local police officer kills a local unarmed person, it's really the mobilization of local people and the press and other government officials with that police force that will actually make the difference in that case. And Professor Body, the same uh, same question about are, are we in some ways more divided after this election than we have uh, been in in several political uh, cycles uh, going back uh, a decade or more, uh, or, or do you? Is it just this uh, outpouring that you, an emotion that you see or hear uh, after any election? Um, like a lot of things, it has yet to be seen. I mean, we're just a few weeks out from the election at this point in time, and emotions are very raw, and they always are right after an election. Um, it's pretty typical to have protests. It's pretty typical to have marches um, to fill up the National Mall and so on. And so if a few months from now or a year from now we continue to see this type of political organization, then I would say, yes, absolutely, that is different from what we've seen in the past. I'm not convinced that um, Americans are going to remain politically engaged at that level in the long term. I think that this is a short-term shock still uh, by the Trump um presidency by the fact that he was elected. Um, and so it, that that has yet to be seen. Um, but to respond to something that Bo said about the local politics versus the national politics, um, you know, the, there is certainly a difference um, in terms of issues about what works at the local level versus the national level. And and the local politics, like he said, is, is um, valuable and useful and efficient when we're talking about dealing with local issues. But if we're talking about a Trump presidency that's trying to move things to a more local level. Um, 
sort of the the traditional conservative line about more local politics, states' rights, um, as opposed to expanding the national government. Um, there are issues that exist today, um, at least uh, that we are aware of today, that perhaps we were not aware of um, at the time that Tocqueville was writing. So climate change is an important piece of that. And so one of the people that's under contention for um, a, an EPA appointment is Mr. Pruitt, Scott Pruitt. And he is somebody that is a strong opponent of Barack Obama's um, climate change initiatives because specifically he wants the states to have um, greater leverage, greater say in some of the climate change policies that would be enacted. That is something that cannot be done at the state level. Um, The EPA just by its nature is national because climate change is a national and really an international problem. So even the U.S. uh, by itself at the federal level cannot solve climate change. It's something that has to be done multilaterally with other countries. Um, And so thinking about this local versus national, um, there's nothing that is inherently advantageous about local politics. If we're just talking in general, it really is an issue to issue um, type of thing that we have to determine what sorts of – problems or or crises we are better suited to solve at the local level or the state level versus what sorts of problems and crises we need to solve at the national level. Yes. Uh, For example, you know, Tocqueville's writing in the 1830s. We know in retrospect that slavery was not only the big issue then, but would be increasingly so and would lead to a civil war and would be highly divisive. And then for a hundred years after that, that uh, race politics, that the regulation and the fighting of of anti-black racism would be the central domestic issue and one that could not be solved locally. I mean, the reason that the federal government expanded its power significantly in the Civil War itself and then in the many years after that up to and including the Civil Rights Movement was because the local level was acting unjustly and that there was no local democratic corrective to that. And it, it produces a, a, an irrationality, an anomaly in what otherwise might be a very localist or very federal view of government, but it proved that some issues, and I think climate change is, of course, another one, um, just have to be addressed nationally. Uh, One of the big fights is about um, education. Education is traditionally the central state function, and the uh, federal government, particularly under the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, federalized it in a way that was very unusual in American history, particularly for Republicans. So to have... The, the succeeding Republican administration uh, try to defederalize education, at least that's what the potential uh, secretary wants to do, um, and voucherize it, charterize it, who knows which direction they'll go, um, would be to go back in a Tocquevillian direction on that issue. And that might work uh, in a way that uh, uh, fighting racism or fighting pollution would not. Let's not forget um, that uh, President Obama it wasn't really titled federalizing, but there were certainly uh, large east that was uh, dangled mm-hmm. uh, in front of um, states uh, all across the nation to participate in what what his education secretary wanted to do, including uh, charter schools. Right, but and, but an incentive plan is is a way of keeping the decision local. Whereas national standards is a way of federalizing what had previously been a local or state issue. What do you think – what was in place in uh, de Tocqueville's uh, America uh, at the time 
that that he would find today uh, in in this election um, from the people and the the small uh, towns and villages that he uh, visited and the observations that he made uh, are there are there as I said to uh, Professor Body are, are there parallels there that uh, that stand out to you? Mm. Well, I, d- I do think that the leadership arises from local leaders. And that we do have a stronger, as she was saying, um, oligarchy, for lack of a better term, than we did then. There's just more rich people and they're better connected. Um, But that most of the way, and and you can see this in Kentucky, a a relatively small pond, um, the the political class, the business class is pretty small. They know one another. Their actual interactions matter. Which church they go to makes a difference. and that would be similar. That that would be the same. I think there are th- there are some multinational corporations making large decisions based on their world posture that just has no parallel in the early 19th century. But as far as ordinary politics goes, it's more similar than different. What um, to to the both of you? What observation do you think he he made in democracy? That um, that he would be disappointed in today mm-hmm. in in the either the progress or lack thereof uh, we've made in and not just in this election cycle but but in others too uh, and, and forget politics throw out politics uh, mm-hmm. that the the the, uh, the progress that that he would be disappointed that we haven't made in this country. Um, I don't know that I can speak for him and say that he would be personally disappointed. Um, especially if, you know, he's coming in as an aristocrat. But I I would say that one of the things that is disappointing in American politics that um, certainly deserves some comment is the issue with the oligarchy, um, the oligarchic class. There is a famous article that was written a couple of years ago out of Princeton that argued that the United States is more of an oligarchy than it is a democracy or a republic because they they did a study and and, um, they looked at campaign donations, they looked at influence um, of the the elite, the economic elite on policymaking and on the types of legislation that is passed. Um, And they demonstrated that there is um, much more influence from the top one or two percent of Americans financially in the United States um, than from the bottom 98 percent. And so thinking about democracy as something that's supposed to be participatory, um, something that should be um, at the disposal of all Americans, regardless of their class, regardless of uh, their financial situation, um, the, the move toward a much more elitist type of democracy is disappointing. And I would say that he certainly would have at least commented uh, on on something like that. Yeah. Uh, an, an interesting feature, and, and we had talked about this earlier, is that the elite that Trump was arguing against is a different elite than the liberals are arguing against, right? That the economic elite, that oligarchy of rich people and the corporations that they get their funds from, um, the 1% that the Occupy movement was talking about is a different thing and really culturally unified, unified in preserving profit and their own uh, wealth, uh, whereas the elite or elites that uh, Trump was against is really a cultural elite of highly educated people who are committed to pluralism and to internationalism and to a general um, uh, uh, care of the, the harmed. 
um, in a way that um, makes political correctness a negative term. Um, I, I was struck by the way that he said that often, which is, I don't have time to be politically correct. It made me curious why it took time. And I think what it is is, for him, it's a mental process of remembering what thing you're not supposed to say, right? Which groups you're not supposed to be insulting. Uh, whereas for liberals, the whole point of liberalism is to be the kind of person who automatically and from the heart uh, gives equal concern to all groups. And so there are two different elites that are being contrasted. And I think um, Tocqueville would recognize that oligarchy is a thing that naturally happens happens in a commercial people. Um, and we, the reason we have democracy is to counter them, um, that we have a cultural elite of universalized values is actually a success, an achievement of democracy. Bo, uh, finally, what would Tocqueville's first tweet be <laughs> uh, back to France uh, after arriving and making some observations? And we're not going to count your characters, but remember right. he was limited. Yeah. Um, uh, Beware the xenophobes, <laughs> right? I mean, there is uh, – fascist is a strong word and I mean this in a narrow and specific mm -hmm. sense. But the the turn toward nationalism, white nationalism, Christian nationalism understood as a narrow tribal us versus an increasing them that we don't like um, it is a danger in every society. And we see this happening in France now. We see it happening here. Your conversation with Professor Batty earlier was just about that. Um, and I think he, as uh, as someone taking the broadest view of how democracy can work, can see that that's the principal danger. That's the thing that divides a society. And seeing it happen here in what is at this moment the leading nation in the world, a model for others, emboldens uh, fascists, nationalists in other places. Um, and he would send a warning back. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.